Good morning. It's good to see you today. It's good to be gathered together with family, with friends, with like-minded believers in Christ. And it's good for us to sing praises to our God and to consider his word this morning. And uh, as we consider God's word today, I want us all to do something. I want us to not think about other people in our life, but think about ourselves and examine ourselves as we look into John chapter 15, 1 through 11. And we're not going to really go through every single verse and break down every single uh, phrase or verse, but rather look at the whole of Jesus' teaching. And this is sort of a uh, opposing view, not an opposing view, but the other view of what Brother Franklin talked about a couple weeks ago uh, when he talked about the book of Ecclesiastes and about Solomon and the way that he looked at life and the way he lived life and what, what Solomon was seeking for in life, and that was peace and joy and contentment. And that phrase that was used over and over in that letter was under the sun, that he was looking at life separate and apart from a view of God and eternity and things that are spiritual, just looking at the things of life and examining life through a lens of what is now and here and what is temporal. And what was his conclusion? Life is terrible. Life is miserable. Everything is useless. Everything is absurd. Every, everything that we do in life, every accomplishment that we make is just a part of the cycle of life. And there's really no great gain to it without God. And his conclusion is fear God and keep his commandments for this is man's all. And so I want to ask you why. Why is that man's all? And I think Jesus tells us in John 15, 1 through 11, the purpose and meaning of our life, how to fulfill that purpose, and how to have real, true joy in life. And that's, what, that's the three things I want to talk to you about today. And so... In order to do that, I want to start with a thought, and I want to continue this thought throughout our entire study this morning. This phrase that Jesus used, that in this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. That is our purpose. Our purpose as children of God is to bear fruit that brings glory and honor to God. And we see this idea of glorifying God over and over uh, throughout the New Testament, you look at the ministry of Jesus and what happened when Jesus was going around and he was preaching and he was performing miracles. Many times the people that he encountered, the narrative says of those people, and they glorified God. That's what Jesus did in his life. It wasn't just about proving who he was. It wasn't just about him fulfilling prophecy. He glorified God in his life by the things that he did, the way that he lived. It was a testimony of God's character. So this is actually from the Oxford Dictionary. This is the definition of the word glorify. Praise and worship God. Look at 1B. Glorify means to acknowledge and reveal the majesty and splendor of God by one's actions. This is what I really want us to think about this morning. And I want to ask you a question for your consideration. What if every person that was in your circle of influence, the only thing they ever got to see about God's character was your life? Who would they think God was? 
Would people look at your actions, your words, the way that you live, how you spend your money, how you spend your time and say, God is great? What's the picture of God that people get from my life? Now, I don't often use secular quotes, but I, I was listening to a, a podcast a while ago, and I heard this man say something that, that I'll tell you really kind of inspired this lesson, and it was a little disheartening, to be honest. This, this man is not a Christian. He would not profess himself to be a Christian. Uh, if you ask him if he believed in God, he says, I am terrified by the reality that God might exist. So take that however you want. But this is what he said. He said, there's no limit to what would happen if you acted like God existed. Maybe it's not reasonable to say to believers, you aren't sufficiently transformed for me to believe that you believe in God or that you believe the story you're telling me. The way you live isn't a sufficient testament to the truth. I mean, really? You believe that Jesus is the Son of God and you act in that way and I'm supposed to buy your belief. Uh, that... It's kind of slammed me in the face for a moment. And, and I'm not saying necessarily that, that this man is an expert or anything, but I'm going to tell you something. There's, there's a truth to this that we need to let sink home. And that's that to a lot of people, we are the only testimony of God that they'll ever get. And what this man is saying is if, if the God that I read about really exists, it doesn't seem like the people who say they believe in him really think that that's the God who exists. And I want to just stop for a moment and think about who God is. Who is God? God transcends time itself. He has no beginning. He will have no end. He is greater than time itself. Who do you know that is greater than time itself other than God. There's no one. There's no one like him. God created all things by his voice. Think about that. You know, one of the laws of, of, uh, of science here in our physical world states that matter can either, neither be created or destroyed. Well, God is not subject to science. He transcends science. God spoke matter into existence. That is power. That is power beyond our understanding. We cannot fathom such power that someone would speak words and matter would be created. Not reshaped, not reformed, but brought into existence through nothing. That's power. God controls and maintains every law of physics that exists. Gravity, inertia, centrifugal force, everything that we read about, that we see, that we observe in the world and in the universe, God maintains it and controls it. That's power. That is greatness. God sees... And knows all things. He sees and knows all things. The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the good and the evil. I'll tell you what that ought to do. That ought to make us shiver 
in awe and in fear. God is incapable of doing wrong. He is entirely without fault. You know, we often honor and we give, we, 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 might, we might use the word glorify. We, we sing the praises of people who are good people, don't we? We talk about good people and what good things they do and how they live their life. But do you know any person that has never done anything wrong? That's lived their life and in fact their character is such that they're incapable of doing wrong. Well, that's who God is. God loved greater than any other. He has given more than any other. He has sacrificed more than any other. He is more generous, more compassionate, more merciful, more forgiving than any other that's ever existed. That's his character. He is the giver of all good things. And God holds the fate of every person in his hand. And I want to ask you a question. Is that the picture of God that people would get by viewing the way that we live and the way we worship God? Is that who he is? Because sometimes our response to the greatness of God doesn't really give off the picture that we believe that he is really that great. Our purpose is to glorify God, to reveal to the world, to reveal to those around us, for me to reveal to my brothers and sisters that God is great and we are not, the world is not, nothing is greater than our God. So the question is how? How do we do that? Going back to our reading in John 15 and verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Now listen to verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Here's step one to bearing fruit to the glory of God. You have to abide in Christ. What does that mean, abide in Christ? Well, there's a lot of things that that means, but I'll tell you, you can't abide in Christ unless you have the opposite view of what Solomon had in Ecclesiastes. Instead of looking at life under the sun, you need to look at life entirely and completely above and beyond the sun. You have to focus on God and who God is and that there is a vast eternity awaiting your mind and your focus have to be on the eternal and the spiritual and on Jesus. We must focus on the reality that Jesus came to this earth, that he is coming back. And we have a choice to either follow him or not follow him. And Jesus went on further to say this. If you abide in me, now notice the relationship, and my words abide in you you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you by this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit so you will be my disciples you know that's a word that's thrown around a whole lot the word disciple what is a disciple of Christ is it somebody that just believes in Jesus is it someone that's just a fan of Jesus they like the idea of Jesus Jesus said a disciple is known by his fruit and the fruit 
is such that's born that glorifies the Father. And it happens because you continue in my word and you follow my word and you abide in my word and you abide in me. So the first thing I want to notice today is we glorify God. We show the world who God is by living a life of holiness and purity. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 9, y'all know this is one of my favorite passages. I use this a lot, but, but I think it's just a, a, a wonderful passage that has so many great truths in it. Uh, Paul, when writing to the church at Philippi, and if you notice Paul's letters, a lot of Paul's letters, there's a lot of negativity in it. If we would call it negativity, there's a lot of conviction and reproof in it. The Philippian letter was not that way. It was a very positive letter, but, but this thought that he gives is such a deep thought, a, a weighty thought, if you really think about what he says. He says, this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in all knowledge and in all discernment that you may approve the things that are excellent. Now listen to the middle of verse 10, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. What does he mean that you may be sincere and without offense? And Brother Aaron's talked to us about sincerity before and what the word sincere means, that it literally means without wax. That is, it is completely pure. It is untainted. It, it has no spot, no blemish. It has no impurities in it. It is completely and totally genuine. And he says, that's how I want you to be presented when the day of Christ appears, that you are pure and without offense. How is that accomplished? He says, I want your love to abound yet more and more in knowledge and all judgment that you may approve the things that are excellent. To set a standard for your life that is so high, it goes beyond what is just good. It goes beyond what is just right. It, all, it goes all the way to excellent. I'm, I want you to look at life, not just use your knowledge and judgment and make decisions, but I want your love to abound. And I think what he's pointing to is the greatest commands. That you love the Lord your God with all your soul, your heart, your mind, your strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Because when those are our view of life, when that's our focus in life, we don't commit sin. We don't live in selfishness. We live in purity. Why? Because my intent, my goal, my focus, my purpose is to love God first, to love you second, to love me last. And look at verse 11. Here's the result of that, being filled, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of who? Of God. Living a pure life is not about me showing you how good I am. It's about me showing you how good God is. And if our ambition in life is to just live in holiness and righteousness so people think we're a good person, we miss the point. That's not our purpose. That is not our purpose. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify the Father. Yes, they need to see our good works, but who needs to be getting the glory for those good works? The Father does. It's not about, well, man, you're a great person. No, God is great. He is worthy of glory and honor. 
And I want to show you how the, the opposite of this actually works. King David is known as the man after God's own heart. And if you look at David's life, David did some incredibly faithful things that take a lot of self-control, a lot of spiritual mindset, and a lot of patience. And I'm, I'm mainly talking about how he endured during the time that Saul was trying to seek after his life to take it. And the way that David handled himself with such calmness and his life was a life that glorified God, but there was, there was an event in his life where David got off the track and he committed some terrible sins. He, he laid with another man's wife and she got pregnant as a result of that. And David, to cover that up, had her husband murdered. I'm sure you all remember the story. And Nathan, the prophet, came to David and told him, what have you done? And you may be thinking, well, why would he tell him what he did? David knew what he did. David was blinded by his own sin. But there's something that he said to him that I think really jumps off the page. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. So Nathan assures David, yes, you sinned against the Lord, but God has put away your sin. He's forgiven your sin. You're not going to be put to death because of your sin. But he says this, however... Because by this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also who is born to you shall surely die. That pregnancy he was trying to cover up. The baby died. Now, we're not going to get into that today, but I'm going to tell you why the baby died. It was a judgment against David because what David had done. And what David did was such a great sin. God said through Nathan, you have given occasion, a great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. What does that mean? It means that you had a responsibility, David. As a leader, you had a responsibility to glorify God and to show God's glory. And you have now given great occasion for all those who are the enemies of God to blaspheme God to speak evil against him rather than glorifying him. There's a lot of people who are looking for opportunity to blaspheme the character of God, to speak evil against him. And sometimes people who are supposed to be God's people, they make it a lot easier for those that seek to blaspheme God to do so because they live in impurity and unholiness. We must live a life of repentance. We must live a life of purity. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 18, Paul says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, listen, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That is a way that we glorify God, the way we present our bodies, the way that we live. And he says, listen, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. And what a tremendous price that was paid. Another way that we glorify God is the unity that we have in the family of God. 
Notice Romans 15 and verse 5. Paul writing here to the church at Rome says, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. This word receive goes back to chapter 14 and the idea is of reception, we would probably use the word embrace one another. Embrace one another. But the point is this, you're like-minded that by one mind and one mouth, you may glorify God. You know what doesn't glorify God? The division that we see among believers in Christ. That does not glorify God. In fact, it hinders the work of God. It hinders the work of Christ. People see Christianity and what they see is division. They see fighting. They see this big mess of confusion and, and everybody believes in the same God, but they all practice and believe different things. And why is that? Because we're not like-minded. We're not united and we're called to unity. In fact, Jesus, in the last prayer that he prayed for the disciples, prayed this prayer. I do not pray for those alone, but also for those who will believe in me through the word. He didn't just pray for the disciples. He prayed for you and me. What did he pray for? That we would be one. That we would all be one. Jesus says, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one as we are one. That the world might believe. You know what's the last statement? I want them to be one. Why? That the world might Believe, I'll tell you a testimony to the goodness of God is when people are treating one another like God treats them. I want you to think about that. When God cleansed us from sin, who are we? Who are we? We were his enemies, weren't we? That's Paul says so much in Romans chapter 5. If when we were his enemies, God reconciled us to him. We were his enemies, and what did God do? He showed us compassion and kindness, and he received us. He embraced us. Rather than giving judgment and looking for reasons to reject us and put us at odds with him, God embraced us and showed us kindness and mercy. That is the same way that we will be united with one another. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If any has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Now listen to verse 14. But above all these things, put on love which is the bond of perfection and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body and be thankful unity is not just about believing the same things that'll get you so far it's important and we just read about that that you're all of one mind and one mouth that you glorify God, but it's not just about believing the same thing. What did he say the bond of perfection was? Did he say it was doctrine? Well, doctrine's important, but that's not the bond of perfection. 
Did he say it's because we come to the same place or we have the same name? No, he said love is the bond of perfection. In fact, above all these things, put on love. Why? Because love is what binds us together. It's what holds the unit together. It's what makes us united. How do we exhibit that love? Through kindness, through compassion, through forgiveness. We put up with one another. He said, let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you were called, listen, in one body. He's not just talking about peace here. He's talking about peace here. Look at John 13 and verse 34. Jesus essentially said the same thing when he said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this will all know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus said, this is the identifying marker of your discipleship, that you love one another just like I loved you. Was Jesus hateful toward us? Was he rude? Did Jesus look for excuses to be angry and mad at us? Is that the way he treated his disciples? No. He gave of himself. He served them. And he says, this is how people will know you're my disciples because you love one another just like I love you. Number three, we glorify God through generosity and through compassion. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 12, Paul writing here says, for the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. I want want to give some context to this first off. He is writing to the church about them giving of themselves, giving of their money basically to share with the needy saints in Jerusalem. And so that's the, what he, when he says the administration of this service, that's what he's talking about. They're being willing to give of themselves to help others. These are people that they didn't even know, but they knew they were brethren and they knew they were needy and that's all that mattered. And so they, they gave in order to help what was going on in Jerusalem. But notice who got the glory for it. God did is also abounding through many thanksgivings to God. Why were they thanking God? They glorify God, one, for your obedience, but secondly, for your liberal sharing with them and with all men. What greater word could we use to describe God's giving than generous? Is God generous? Well, what about God's people? Are we generous? Are we generous? Jesus said, love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. Generosity has absolutely nothing to do with the attitude of the recipient. 
And here's what I mean. Sometimes we're generous to people and they're ungrateful. And you know what I, you know what I want to do if somebody's ungrateful when I do something for them? Never again. You showed me your character. So next time, nope. But what's he say about God? God is even kind to the ungrateful. And what'd he say? So you be like him. Why? Because it's not about them. It's about mercy. It's about being merciful. Why? Because God's people are generous. When God's people see a need, they look within themselves and ask themselves, just like the church at Corinth, do I have the supplies and the ability to help with this need? And they, they don't ask any more questions. They help with the need. They're generous. They're not looking for an opportunity to close their wallet. They're looking for opportunities to open it. And this has nothing to do with you putting money in, in the box or in the plate. I'm talking about as an individual, the way we live our life, the way we interact with others, when we see a need, do we help with the need as an individual? Do we have a heart of generosity and compassion? Because when we do, God is glorified. When we don't, God is not. You want to see the examples of that? Look at these televangelists that get up and talk about, if you'll just send me more money. What does the world think of them? What does the world think of God because of them? God's people are generous. They're not greedy, looking for a way to grab more. They're looking for opportunities to give what God has given them to the help and need and assistance of others. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. He gives two things when he talks about pure religion. One is purity. You know what the other one is? Selflessness. Looking out and seeing where people have needs. Helping in affliction, helping in a time of trouble, helping to bear burdens. God's people are generous, not just with their money, but with their time. Number four, one of the greatest ways we can glorify God is to be patient while suffering. And I want to spend just a, a couple minutes talking about suffering itself and, and what Peter says regarding suffering. Peter says, if you're a reproach for the name of Christ, and what he's saying is, if, if you suffer because you're a Christian, that's what he's saying. He says, blessed are you. And that word blessed literally means happy. That, that, that's such a mental cartwheel, isn't it? it? It just stands logic on its head that we would be happy for suffering. But he says, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he's blasphemed, but on your part, he's glorified. In other words, they're trying to speak against God by doing what they're doing to you and, and persecuting you, but you going through it in the right way is causing glory to be to God. But he said, let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. You know, unfortunately, we have decided that suffering itself, just suffering is a virtue. Suffering's not a virtue. Everybody suffers. Suffering by itself is not virtuous. Suffering becomes virtuous when we go through the suffering in the right way. 
Suffering is virtuous when we suffer because we're a Christian and we glorify God through our suffering. That's where the virtue of suffering really is. So I want to think about Job for just a moment. I want to think about his suffering and and I want to just look at why Job suffered. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Let's just think about the statement for a moment. This is God's narrative about Job. So God looks at the devil and says, behold, Job, look at his character. Look how he lives. Look how he fears me. And Satan says, does Job fear God for nothing? What's he mean by that? Well, it'd probably be hard to understand that, but he goes on to say this. Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions are increased in the land, but now stretch forth your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. You know what Satan's saying? He's saying... Job's a sellout, okay? Here's the truth about Job. Job really looks at life under the sun, and if you'll take away everything that you've given him under the sun, he'll curse you to your face. The only reason Job says God's great and Job lives the way God li- uh, Job lives the way Job lives is because everything is good in Job's life. He's rich, his health is good. You've put this hedge of protection around him. Let me add him. Let me hurt him. Let me make him suffer. And his glorifying you will turn to blasphemy. He'll curse you. That's probably true for a lot of people. It is probably true for a lot of people. But it wasn't true of Job. In the midst of Job's suffering... After all 10 of his children died and he lost all of his wealth and his life was in chaos, it says Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshiped. He didn't curse God in his suffering. He glorified him. And he said, naked came out of my mother's womb and naked I will return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. And my question is how? How is it on your worst day that your fundamental reaction is to praise God. What's changed in Job's life? What's changed? His comfort, his emotional state, his relationship with his wife has changed, his monetary status has changed. The way people look at him has totally changed. All that's changed. But you know what hadn't changed? Who God is. 
And that's why on Job's worst day when he had absolutely nothing, he could fall down and worship God. You know why? Because God is worthy of my worship if he gives me nothing. Because me worshiping God is not just about thank you for what you've given me. It's behold your greatness. We're fine with seeing the praises of those we think are great unless it's God in our suffering. God is great. And the psalmist said, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord in his sanctuary. Praise him in the mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. And on that day, even though Job had nothing and the world was nothing but pain and misery, Job's first thought to that is, God is great. God is great. And blessed be the name of the Lord. What's more inspiring? Someone who lives their life in riches and in health and everything goes great for them and they stay faithful to God or somebody like Job whose life really was miserable but he stayed faithful anyway. I tell you, that's a sermon that will preach the greatness of God right there. And our life can be the same way. I want to end with John 15 verses 9 through 11 where we started. Jesus says, as the Father loved me, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Why does God want us to keep his commandments? You know, some have accused God of just being a tyrannical dictator, and that's why he, he just wants us to follow all of his will because he wants to keep us in line. Is that true? What did Jesus say? Jesus says, if you'll live your life the way that I live my life, abiding in the Father and keeping his commandments, your joy will be full. Your joy will be full. And we need to recognize something. We need to recognize that many times in life, most of the time in life, we are the limiter of our own joy because we get focused on everything under the sun. And all of a sudden, life becomes terrible and miserable. But when we fulfill our purpose and we live our life to the glory and praise of God, what happens? We have peace and our joy is full. The interesting and ironic thing about joy is those who seek joy in self-fulfillment never find it. But those that give of themselves in service are the happiest people in the world because it's not about them. God did not design us to be filled with the things of this world, to be filled with the comforts of this world, to be filled with the pleasures of this world. He designed us to have a heart for him and a heart for eternity. And when our heart turns toward him and we live our life and we glorify God, we find true joy and fulfillment in life. 